out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I am David Eastall. As always, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Mega City 4 because I spoke to Katara's Jerry Bryant to find out more about life, love, poetry, being in an indie rock punk band and much, much more. Anyway, after some casual chat, as you do when you um, introduce yourself, we got down to that exciting world that is the musical journey. And um, yes, I was curious about those first years of being, well, the early years of being slowly obsessed about music. And this was Jerry's response. Jerry, it's over to you. Well, before you go any further, I've got some mildly exciting news for you, if you like glam rock. Yes. Because uh, these days I'm a sound engineer and tour manager. And one of my clients, if you like, is Susie Quattro. Wow, yes. Devil, devil, devil something. Devil Gate Drive. Yes, yeah. it was amazing. I've been working for her for about 15 years now. Well, Susie. Uh, but anyway, I'll tell you all about that later on. So what got me into music? Well, let's see. Uh, I think... Um, the first time, obviously, my mum and dad used to listen to the Beatles and the Shadows, Beach Boys. Um, that my dad used to love Dave D, Dozy, Dozy Beaky, Mick and Titch, who I also worked for as well for a while. <laughs> um, I know. Uh, uh, I'm still basically on tour, David. I've been on, ta- on tour since 1987. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, apart, apart from this COVID-19 crisis, which is buggered everything up uh you know i've had three months off but i I haven't stopped touring uh so and then i think my brother started listening to acdc and status quo Mm, deep purple led zeppelin and that's um you did an interview with danny didn't you i think i did an interview with danny yes i listened to it it's really good and so me and danny got together at school and we're listening to you know, heavy metal stuff. I used to nick my brother's records and pretend they were mine. Um, and well, it's also, what it was interesting yeah. because what did you have an older brother? I did have an older brother. Yeah, three years older than me. Yeah. And was he kind of your role model? Because I had an older brother who was seven years older, and I kind of worshipped him. And as I said, and I was I, I was born in '64, and he during the '70s yeah. was very into the world that was. Prog rock, so it was Yes Genesis, Wishbone Ash, and uh, he forbid me to go in his room and listen to his records. So obviously you wait, and then you go into his well, room and listen to his records and think, "Wow!" My brother, my brother did, but I waited till he was out. <laughs> yes, well, no, no, you know, because because he would he would look at the you know he was like he became an accountant. It all makes sense, really. Um, but he would look at the records and see if there was any finger marks on it, and you, so you had to be really sharp, you know, to be able to go and listen to. Topographic Oceans or Close to the Edge or Selling England uh-huh. by the Pound, which was, at, you so, know, when, when you're very young, it seems like, wow. And then you go back to Gary, <laughs> Gary Glitter and The Sweet and you think, well, this is all right. I quite like it. Yeah, I love The Sweet. Um, so um, I started listening to sort of ACDC status quo date with Danny. And then also, just before that, actually, I, I befriended a chap used to live around the corner from me in, in Farnborough because I moved up from Portsmouth to Farnborough. Um, I was born in 65 as well, just after you, by the way. Um, and when I was 12, 
I was going round this chap called Lee Crab's house, lived round the corner, who was a year above me at school, and he got me into punk rock. So I started listening to punk in 1977, the early Clash, Vibrators, X-Ray Specs, Penetration, um, Bowie, and I used to love punk rock. Yes. And did you, I mean, did you sort of start to sort of have feeling, you know, feeling, did you start to sort of think, oh, I might want to do that? Because cause when I was growing up, I don't know if it was because it was kind of East Anglia and it was kind of very much the countryside, but no one really aspired to playing an in- instrument. It was kind of just playing football and kicking, you know, basically football around a lot and um, hanging out at the bus shelter. But instruments never really appeared in anyone's life. And, you know, though we were obsessed with music, as you are when you're younger, and then become slightly more obsessed when you get into your teens and late teens, yes. you know, being in a band, was it just didn't seem to be something we did, you know. So I just was wondering if that was something you kind of, being in a different region in the country, you know, saw other people sort of forming bands. Not really, no. There was a couple of local bands that we used to go and see. One was a status quo tribute band. Um, and then there used to be a band called the Larry Miller Group, or Larry Miller Band. It used to come by our local village hall. <laughs> we used to go and see. Me and Danny used to go and see them. Yeah. I, d- I don't know. When I got to 14, I decided, right, I'm going to buy a bass guitar and I'm going to be in a band. Yes. And what was your first single and first albums then? Ever. Yeah, yes, <laughs> your first. The first, single, the first single I ever bought was Stuck in the Middle with You by Steeler's Wheel. Beautiful. No, hang on. Is it Stuck in the Middle? Yeah, it's called Stuck in the Middle by Steeler's Wheel. That was in 1971, I think. I bought that down in Portsmouth for 15 pence. Yep. From a shop around the corner. And the first album, my mum and dad gave me a Top of the Pop smash hits Spash hit 72, but the first one I bought, cool, that's a, that's a tough one actually. That was the first record I actually bought. Vinyl. I think it must have been the first Clash album, first Clash album I think. Well, that's respectable. I must admit, you know, because at the time, I, you know, it was kind of the sweet Alice Cooper, especially with Skills Out. But luckily, my first single was David Bowie's Changes One. Uh, ch- not Changes, oh. it was Space Oddity with Changes on the B side. But you mentioned oh. Portsmouth, which featured a few decades later, because um, Portsmouth had quite a music scene, didn't it? Did you keep a connection with Portsmouth? Not really. Uh, my only connection with Portsmouth, because I've not lived there since 1975, was... The, uh, I, I still go and see Portsmouth Football Club. I've got a season ticket still. Yes. <laughs> um, you you um, had great success a decade ago, wasn't it? Yeah, about, yeah, 12 years ago we won the FA Cup and it's all been downhill since then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, that's football. That is, I, I, that I prefer is. the underdogs anyway. I'm glad I support yeah. Portsmouth. I mean, that's where I was born. So, But there, it's a great vibe down there. It's a really good... I love the ground. I love the fans. I love the team. The actual game itself, I'm getting, I think it's gone off the wheels a bit, you know, off the tracks a bit. The actual game itself, it's all a bit money orientated, but I've put me off. But I I do like to go to the football game live, you know, seeing it actually in front of you rather than watching it on telly. Yes. Well, I've got, I've got fond memories. My parents used, well, my dad used, and my older brother used to go to Portsmouth, Portsmouth Road, Portsmouth Road. That's right, isn't it? Ipswich Town Football Club. You know, oh, it, 
Portman Road, jeezy crazy. Sorry about Portman. that. Portman Road to see dear old Ipswich, who were really successful in the seventies and eighties, and so uh, there's some of those big games between Leeds and Liverpool because Ipswich seemed to come second and third a lot of the time, you know, during yeah. that period. But they did have some dramatic games and some big crowds. Well, well Paul, Paul Mariner for a while, and it was that other bloke that was banging goals in left, right, and centre. And of course, Robbie uh, Brian, not Brian Robson. Who's the guy that went on to manage England? Um, Kevin, no. Oh, no, Rob. Uh, oh, flipping it. Oh, Bobby Robson. Robson, of course. Yeah, Bobby Robson. Bobby Robson. He was managing it at the time, and they were just they were cleaning up everywhere, weren't they? Well, Fantastic yes. They brought in the two Dutch guys, and it just changed. It changed them so much. They they had that sophisticated. They could pass a ball, basically. Let's face it. So then, going back to your musical career, then you know. Sorry. No, that's fine. I I still have fond memories of Bobby Robson's Blue and White Army being chanted from the terraces. I was very young. It seemed incredibly exciting at the time, um, and watching Dirty Leeds. So yeah. So when did so you and Danny sort of knew each other right, right back then? Well, we got to, we got together in Farnborough. Um, we went to the same school, Cove Comprehensive School, um, and I think we sort of started. We, when I first met Danny Brown, I was at infant school, le- age eleven. And he followed me home from school, and he was I had shorts on, and he was firing his pea gun at my legs. Yeah, so, that's what we did in the seventies. Right yeah, he was a right little yobbo. So <laughs> anyway. I ended up getting fed up and I was I was I was sort of a bit of an angry boy, I suppose I still am really. And I put up with it for so long and eventually I turned around and we had a fight. <laughs> and then uh, we've been sort of best friends ever since. <laughs> Excellent. Well that's good. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's that's almost up there with the 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 relationship, I suppose, with Jag well, even before, you know, like Jagger and Richards, you know, Keith. Um yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's been like that. Uh, so yeah, got got friendly with Danny, and then we obviously was you know Wiz was Danny's older brother, and he was into sort of music as well, Rush, all the metal stuff, um, ACDC, Diamond Head, um, Motorhead, UFO, Scorpions, and we all used to go to together to go up to Hounslow Odeon to watch the um, bands play there when they played. Uh, yeah. Me, Danny, Wiz, and another another few sort of heavy metal fans from Farnborough. Metal was uh, yeah, quite. Bon Scott there actually. Right, because I think my I had a friend who um, saw one of his last ever concerts. That was that was possibly his first ever gig was going to see ACDC, and I think Bon Scott sort of um, died quite re- quite soon after that. Because because coming from the East Anglian region, the band that you could not say one word about without getting beaten up was the Quo. Status Quo were everything in our area. You know that was just yeah. they were gods. They were so I they, loved them. Yeah. They were the band. And then, you know, then because my brother also had a Deep Purple album, which I loved, and uh, Black Sabbath. But then apart from that, he didn't go for it. But a few years later, I sort of really enjoyed. I loved heavy metal, but the British heavy metal with, you know, basically it was Motorhead and not much else. <laughs> I just yeah. said, uh, Motorhead. And actually right until their last ever album with the new, you know, the new lineup, which did last a lot longer. I still thought they they wrote amazing songs and had an amazing sound. So, um even though everyone goes on about the the magic three at the beginning, I still think they were stunning. So, um, yeah, British British heavy metal is fantastic, you know. But um, I was never into glam rock from the LA scene. It was just all a bit weird. No, same here. 
just couldn't work it. So then you got your first band, Stallion, which sounds something from a, a Rocky film, actually, doesn't it? Oh, I did actually have a band before that called uh, a, a band I was in at school called High Octane, which featured a member of Stallion, Tony Taylor on guitar, uh, a different drummer and a different keyboard player. But that was just mucking about in someone's front room and I couldn't really play. So that wasn't a proper band. But the first band was Stallion. Yeah, I, I formed Stallion with a guy called Tony Taylor and a guy called Jem French, who I'm still really good friends with today. Uh, I think we were 14 and we used to rehearse at the Labour Club in, um, or the Labour Hall in, uh, in Cove in Farnborough. And um, every Monday night, three hours, we used to get my mum's shopping trolley, load all my gear onto her shopping trolley and walk about two or three miles to the um, labour hall down the main road. Loads of, loads of cars were bibbing their horns and stuff at me. <laughs> Excellent. This uh, is, uh, this is yeah, dedication, isn't it? Yeah, and we, we did a couple of shows with Stallion, one at the labour hall and one at... Um, oh, that was it, actually. And then Wiz and Danny came along to that, sh- uh, that gig. I mean, literally, we were 14, 15 probably by then. And uh, Wiz came along and he, he said, oh, you know, I thought it was really great and I really enjoyed it. And so we had a little band meeting and said, well, let's let's ask Wiz, see if he joins. He's a really good singer. He's a really good guitarist. And he writes songs. So uh, Wiz joined and we did two shows as Stallion with Wiz in the band. Uh, I've got a recording of one of them, actually. It's pretty funny. Uh, we did it uh, at the school. Yeah, so uh, Stallion was good fun. It was really good fun. Yeah. And then, I mean, did you, I mean, because it, I just think it's quite amazing, you know, to sort of start sort of trying to play. I mean, because you obviously didn't have someone there, an elder person or somebody who kind of could direct you like a football coach or somebody saying, right, you need to play like this. Because it sounds like, apart from Wiz, everyone else was just... So did you know what a chord was? And did you know, like, how you put a song together? Because I spoke to somebody in, in the Dillons, a band called the Dillons, and... Um, you know, they didn't really understand what a melody was until someone said, oh, you know, that, you know, that's OK, but you need to do this, this and this to make a sound, you know. Oh, right. That's how you make music, you know. So I just wonder how does how do you create something that's so unique? Even if you were doing it, even if you were a covers band, you still have to r- put it together, don't you? Well, the I'd say the songs before Wiz joined were pretty pedestrian. <laughs> we We were obviously listening to Status Quo a lot. So they sounded a bit like Satan's Quo, really, but not much more than three or four chords and sort of shouting over the top. Uh, drummer wasn't particularly good when we started. He got a lot better, but he wasn't great. He used to speed up and slow down quite a bit. <laughs> uh, yeah, he, got a lot, he got a lot better after that. He, he's a really good drummer now. Oh, and, um, so we used to spend time writing lyrics in maths at school, you know, under the desk. And uh, one of the songs was about school, actually. Wasted Days, it was called. <laughs> nice. Uh, then we, had a, we had a song called Stallion, <laughs> which was like a seven-minute epic. God, that's which, uh, we, we just, That was only about two notes, I think, two or three notes, uh, with a really brilliant riff. Um, we had a song called Sword of Evil, which went on for God knows how long. That was a real plodder. Um, uh, what else? Do, I can't remember anymore. I, we used to do a lot of Iron Maiden covers, actually. The first Iron Maiden album, we did Transylvania and uh, Phantom of the Opera. 
and I think we might have done a couple of crow covers as well. So we got a sort of half hour set, cobbled a half hour set together for our first gig. <laughs> yeah, that's that's amazing because because you know the way that music goes. I mean, I know it's a bit simplistic, but you know between you know something like this sort of the glam period and punk, then you had that post punk kind of time with bands like Magazine and Gang of Four and Peel. And then and then you got that sort of in the indie world that, you know, in a way, you know, you had Orange Juice, but then you, you know, 83, you had the Smiths and they were such a force of nature for five years. You know, they, they kind of had that sort of sound that a lot of people kind of started to sort of gravitate towards, you know, there was like bands like the June Brides and the Go-Betweens. And so the jingly jangly world was definitely quite sort of, you know quite dominant at that stage and you know the indie because the mainstream had the you know the trevor horn production sound which was quite sort of like that whole you know when we see top of the pops and we watch them you know with the big hair and the big balloons and you know that kind of really quite a sterile i think quite a sterile sound then you sort of saw morrissey and then you saw the indie you know like bands like the indie world with echo and the bunny men you know it was quite a tribal period the the 80s in a lot of ways you either went one camp or the other were you kind of looking at that kind of world and and listening to john peel and and thinking you know this is kind of the direction that we want to take or were you just not even looking beyond you know the the sort of the um, the labor club what in stallion you mean yeah and then in mega city uh... Hall. Well, I don't know. We didn't used to listen to John Peel. I don't think he was even on the radio then, was he? I don't know. Yeah, no, John we were just, we were just I suppose he was, but we were just busy listening to our, our own records, you know, in our, in our bedrooms, really. Um, and as far as the band goes, we just played what we wanted. I wouldn't say we were influenced by anything particularly. We just played what we felt like and what we wanted, you know. Yeah. No, it's... Even though we weren't you know, particularly brilliant at playing at the time, we we, we we did our best. <laughs> I know. But then, but that was kind of interesting that period because then, you know, we had the Thatcher years, especially she'd been in power since 73. And then, you know, a lot of people who I've interviewed have, have sort of in that, you know, when you're quite young and, and there's just like mass unemployment and it's like, okay, we'll just go and sign on for a few years. And everyone I knew just went, well, yeah, that's what you're going to do for a year or two until something happens, but not really feeling particularly ambitious or having many dreams, you know, and there was all those schemes like the Job Seekers Allowance and Enterprise Allowance. So that kind of gave quite a lot of people like, oh, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. Not like, oh, I'm going to go and get a job, then I'm going to do this, and I might play a bit of music. It's like, I'm going to sign on, I'm going to drink a lot, play some, you know, mm. play, play play my guitar, be in a band, so it gives you a feeling of sort of some sort of status in the world and feeling of sort of purpose. And that, you know, in a weird way, helped sort of drive so much of that music in the 80s because it's like, you know, you spend two years really focused on playing in a band. Eventually, well, hopefully, you you start to create something that dear old John Peel picks up on and, and gives it that sort of spin. So I just wondered what your 80s period was like, you know, from, you know, from Stallion to Mega City 4. Well, well, early 80s, like I say, it was all metal, listening to metal, sort of playing a sort of derivative of metal and punk, punk metal. And, and then we, and then after Biz got, Biz wanted to form another band with uh, Danny uh and asked me to join uh and we formed a band called capricorn <laughs> uh with a, a drummer called martin steve from basingstoke and that was very punk pop not really metal very punk pop the drummer was really into his tribal 
like Bow Wow Wow and um, Adam and the Apps or drumming. Yes. Uh, and we did a few shows around, did quite well locally, got local following. And then, I don't know, didn't really, me and, me and the drummer didn't really click. And I think Wiz and the drummer fell out one day. And, oh, that's right. Yeah, Martin used to go to college with Danny and Basil, so that's why, why he was in the band. And so he, I can't remember if he left or we, or, or we asked him to leave. But then we got this, then we got Chris Jones in, who was it, the the Mega City Four drummer, um, and that's when we changed our name to Mega City Four, and uh, we sort of started afresh in uh, 1987. Which uh, is, um, yes, which is kind of one of I often think is 87 is one of the great years for music because there were so many good albums that had come out that year. I mean, the 80s did have a lot of good years, but I mean that that was a particularly mm. memorable one for me. I think we spent that whole year just rehearsing at a place called the Railway Enthusiast Club in Farnborough <laughs> every weekend for about four hours. Uh, and, yeah, I, th- I think we might have done one show at the end of 1987 at the place, at the Halsden Mean Fiddler. Oh, OK. Uh, we, to, we brought a coach load of people up who we, we were, you know, just mates, really. Those were the days when you had to pay to play, you know, to guarantee selling 50 tickets. Otherwise, they wouldn't have you back, you know. Yeah. So they gave you 50 tickets and you sold them to your mates and you hired a coach and they all went up there, got drunk and sort of threw up on the coach on the way home. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, it's got to be so, done. And it, well, yeah. the other thing, I mean, because dear old John Peel does pick up with the band, doesn't he, a little bit later on down the line. And the one thing that I'd noticed from... Uh, you know, doing these interviews is that there was a sort of an interest in sort of organic network happening on several levels. You know, you had people like, I suppose, there was also Janice Long as well and Kid Gents and then Peel, who loved to play anything really obscure and odd from, you know, Big Flame yes. to um, Big Stick to Bogshed to Stump, you know, so anything which was quite off the wall, you yeah. know, would get a spin and then it would get a John Peel session and, and obviously, you know, geeky people like me loved it because we'd record the John Peel show on our trusty TDK D90 cassette because <laughs> you'd have to listen to it yeah. a few times because all the music was new so and it wasn't easy listening yeah. at the best of times but then you had you know each town and every city you know mostly had a venue didn't they a club night an indie night or alternative so, night you know so a lot of people would just get you know in a band would just get a phone call saying do you want to come to the Norwich Arts Centre to play at the Wild Club and you go oh yeah of course Tuesday night you know next week next month you know or you know probably a bit longer in the future like two months time and you just kind of randomly go there and then go to the George Roby or the you know Duchess of York in Leeds, I think, and and you know every every place had it, so it kind of helped bands kind of develop their kind of skill, really, wasn't it? Absolutely. I tell you something, David. It scares me now how few venues like that there is. Um, not not due to the amount of bands. There's plenty of bands that want to play these places, but they're just so difficult to run these days. Uh, you know, financially, I think. Um, Yes. Well, I actually, I I came to see Mega City 4 down at the Caribbean Club in Ipswich many years ago. Oh, is that one with Carter the Unstoppable Sex Machine supporting? I 
I don't know. <laughs> I just remember we, we came down to see Mega City 4. And so I don't know. I mean, there used to be a lot of, you know, I mean, when I look at the, the sort of lineup at the Wild Club, which was in Norwich at the Arts Centre, I mean, they'd have three bands and, and every one of those bands were like, God, they were good. And that was all for £2.50p or £3 at the most, yeah. you know. And, and you so... Know that is a dying scene, David. It's, it really does worry me a bit, really. Uh, the fact that um, there aren't, you know, gigs just down the road from people anymore. I mean, for example, I live near Salisbury now and there's nowhere in Salisbury really to play. No yes. bands come through here at all. Yeah, I know. You know, it's... And, and you'd, and you'd always a, remember hearing John Peel say, no, so-and-so is going to be at Harlow Square, Princess Charlotte, you know, the George Roby and, and you know, and, and people like me, you know, you'd hear the janitors and he'd play a single and then they'd be, oh, look, they're at the art centre. And you think, I only know one single, but it's good enough. I'll go and go and see the janitors at the art centre. And there'd be another 100, yeah. 200 people also having the same idea. So it was a cultural, I think it was quite a cultural thing that, you know, and the NME had a circulation of something like 100,000 on a, a weekly <laughs> paper and then you had oh. the melody maker sounds and record mirror so you know there was this kind of without it being organized top down it was an organic kind of network going on throughout the country absolutely my, one of my favorite things was reading looking at the gig guide every week in sounds and seeing what gigs were on and going to as many gigs as possible we used to go to the, the clarendon hotel up in hammersmith quite regularly uh hammersmith palais lyceum Brixton Academy, going to see the Cramps, the Ramones, um, <clears throat> the yes. Addicts, which who were from Ipswich, weren't they, the Addicts? I can't remember them. The Stupids were from Ipswich, but I can't remember if um, yeah. the a Addicts. A punk band called the Addicts that used to dress like characters from the Clockwork Orange, all in white with bowler hats. The Addicts, mm, they were yeah. called. Well, I'll definitely look them up. Yeah, they because the alarm used to go and seems to be like the alarm, the dam. There was plenty to see, wasn't there? All the time, it was fantastic. Well, you had also, you know, interestingly, because there was the, there was those bands, and there was the anarcho kind of punk bands as well, like Chumbawamba and the Poison Girls and Blythe Power, and yes, the Osric Tentacles. I'm not sure what they were. They were just. I love the Osric. You'll listen to the Osric. They, I know, it, there was just, uh, you know, there was festivals all the time, wasn't there? So, look, when did you start to think, right, we're going to get into the studio, we've got some material, we're going to do a single with a B-side? Well, uh, um, Wiz wrote Miles Apart. Have you heard that song? No, actually, the the, the, the band, the one that really caught my ear was, was the one that I, oh, God, I'm going to get it wrong, aren't I? This is age. Is it called January? Yes, that's on the album, yeah. Uh, but we did, uh, Wiz wrote this song called Miles Apart, which was, uh, well, John Peel thought it sounded a bit like uh, Teenage Kicks by The Undertones. It was just a three-minute sort of pop-punk song, really. Uh, he wrote that, we re rehearsed it, and we thought, yeah, well, that, that, that's going to make a good single. So we went along to a studio in Croydon called The Old Barn, which looked it up in Sounds or Enemy, booked it. Uh, we did um, a day's recording, two songs and mixing there. And it, as it turned out, the engineer in the studio was a guy called Matthew Fisher, who was the keyboard player from Procol Harum. Oh, blimey. That yeah, is... you know, the... Da, 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 yes. da, da, da. We didn't realise at the time, but he, he was a very nice bloke and he did a fantastic job. So we released Miles Apart. Um, Second one to John Peel. 
And I was working on night shift at the time in Cambly at an aircraft, uh, building aircraft seats and toilets and things. And um, I used to listen to John Peel religiously on, on there on the night shift. It's the only thing that got me through, really. Yes. And then one night, he played our record. <laughs> and I was like fucking running around with Sally all the time. I'm on the radio! I'm on the fucking radio! My band's on the radio! And they couldn't <laughs> believe it either. And uh, I was absolutely ch- you know, chuffed to fuck as we all were. Um, yes. And then he played it He played it every week for six weeks. Um, and it also made it his festive 50 that year as well. So that must have been 1988, I suppose. Yes, I think your first John... Uh, Yes, and then, and then you got a John Peel session, didn't you, as well? We did get a John Peel session, that's right, which featured four or five songs off Transophobia, the first album, I think. That's the one, because this was recorded in August 88, another fine year for music. Okay. And that, okay. that includes five songs, Severe Attack of the Truth, Clear Blue Sky, yeah. January, yeah. Distant Relatives and Alternative Arrangements, which is an epic 12-minute song. Yeah, it's three off the first album, and there's two. There's one that Distant Relatives was our second seven inch. That was a cracking song. That was absolute blinder. And um, Clear Blue Sky was the B side of that, I think. Four miles apart, I can't remember. But yeah, that that was the first field session we did. That was good fun. And did you and did you have the famous Dale Griffith produce those? Oh, flipping it, I can't remember. Don't think so. Because I remember he, he would he would often, you know, they'd often say, oh, yeah, produced by... Who was the mop, the hoopal guy, wasn't he? Two guys that did all the sessions. There was Dale Griffiths and there was... Was it John something? John Robinson? Mick Robinson? Yeah, something, something like that. I think it was him. Yes, yeah. so there you go. Which is kind of... That really gives a lot of bands that kind of, you know, like I like without sounding like a really old person, but I, I sort of realised a lot of bands struggle to to play in front of anybody who they don't know. Normally it's just in front of your friends, family, anybody you can emotionally blackmail to go and see you. Yeah. Whereas when you got that John Peel play and then you got the NME or the Melody Maker, you know, it did mean that you would then get sort of in your trusty van, go up the motorway and get slightly lost and then turn up and play in yeah. front of complete strangers who look like they know your song which must for a that must you know like the main one of the main things in life is feeling like you're progressing so that must as a musician be like oh right this is interesting it, it was brilliant Dave I've got to say to you but also we kind of thought we a little bit arrogantly thought we deserved it <laughs> You know, we thought, yes, we are a good band and people do like us. That's fantastic. Onwards and upwards. You know, we were very positive. We really had the fire in our belly back then. Yes. Uh, nothing else matters. Nothing else mattered apart from the band and playing music and, you know, and, well, the travelling sort of in between the shows. We really, really loved it. We lived for it every second. It was absolutely fan- fantastic times. Well, it's interesting because actually, you know, like there was that guy, Malcolm Gladwell, he did that theory about the 100,000 hours of practice and worked out the Beatles had done it before they did Sergeant Pepper and various other people had spent, you know, all this time. But, you you know, success didn't just wasn't overnight, was it? You'd been in bands for pretty much that whole decade before you started to get yeah. this kind of moment. So you'd you'd already done a lot of it. the apprenticeship years, which kind of was almost like yeah. eight years of sort of being in, you know, making a sound, being in your labour club, rehearsing, turning up and not sort of losing sight of what you were trying to do. Absolutely. Uh, it was, what can I say? We just were so determined. Nothing else mattered. 
you know, yes. it was in our blood, it's in our hearts. And did you? We were and, gonna... and as a band, did you feel like a a gang at that stage? Did you feel like you'd got it? You know, you the four of you were pretty tight. Well, me, Wiz, and Dan were really close friends anyway, because we were friends before the band, and uh, and Chris uh, fitted in brilliantly, and I suppose we. Yeah, we did feel like a gang. And when we got our crew, which was two or three of our mates, we really felt like a gang. We, we felt untouchable. Which is kind of what you need, isn't it? The four, the classic, you know, four-piece band. You're out there. Yeah. And and then when, as you, because, you know, obviously you'd gone from more of a Tommy Vance and the heavy metal world into more of a, I don't know, thrashy sound, which I loved because there was like the, you know, it was Husker Du was the kind of one of the other bands I loved. Oh. They were the kind of, you know, when I heard Husker Du, you know, it was just like, okay, this is this is kind of my new obsession in life, as you do. Oh, and, I yeah, I and then Husker you had Do. people like the Buttholes and then Sonic Youth and then the Pixies and stuff like that. And then in London, well, not in London, but, you know, there was that whole scene of My Bloody Valentine, Silverfish, The Faith Healers, uh, The Senseless Sings. And then snuff, which we loved as well. I mean, did oh, you did you yeah. suddenly? Because obviously you're not all living in the same house, kind of having breakfast together. But did you suddenly feel like there was a you know you were part of a bit of a scene as well? Thinking, oh yes, we all have a bit of a thing. You know, we we slightly you know in this camp, so to speak. Oh. Well, when you say having breakfast together, me, Wiz, and Danny used to live in the same house, so <laughs> <laughs> we had we had breakfast together. Uh, to be honest with you, yes, we sort of got lumped in with, well, they tried to lump us in with various scenes, but we did our level best to make sure we weren't part of any scene. <laughs> because we always thought, you know, a scene uh, is born and grows and then it dies very quickly. So if we're part of any scene, we won't be around for very long. You see what I mean? Yes. So we, we did our very, very best. We used to obviously play a lot of gigs with Sense of Things and Snuff because we loved them and Carter and Ned's. Um, and I, was, I used to love the Wonder Stuff and Popley itself as well. But we really tried our very best not to be part of any, uh, you know, scene that someone could pigeonhole us and so that, you know, when the next scene came along, we would have been history. Yeah, which we which we were eventually, but only about nine years later. <laughs> which is so we delight. managed to prolong it by not being part of a scene. We managed to prolong our careers in music business or touring and making records by about seven years. <laughs> which is yes, that's still. So, have you? What's your memory of the first studio album? Did that come together? Because often, you know, quite quickly. I mean, because often that's the kind of all the work that you've been doing. So you've got this kind of pile up of kind of ideas and songs that you can just a bit like the black sabbath first record where they album where they just kind of went in and banged it out in an afternoon it's like well we've been playing it yeah. for years we, we we don't need to do it again we'll just do it in one take that's pretty, that's pretty much what we did david i think we we uh vinyl solution our label at the time there were just a french a uh, couple of french guys running a record shop in portobello road uh, the shop was called Vinyl Solution, and the label they formed was called Decoy. So we didn't, they didn't give us a large amount of money. We were still working, I think, at the time. Um, or were we? I can't remember. We might have just been doing gig after gig uh, to survive. Uh, so they just put us in this studio called Loco in Wales for a week or two weeks with Ian Burgess uh, producing it. And, we yeah, we banged it out. I think we might have banged it out in a week. 
which is pretty amazing. Yeah. It's the... Yeah, I mean, we'd rehearsed those songs so much. Yes. You know, that we had them, we didn't, none of this going in there and the producer saying, oh, you know, can you take four bars out of there and put them there and then do a double chorus there? And it's like, right, these are the songs that we're doing and we've rehearsed them, let's go. <laughs> And that's what we did. <laughs> yes. And being, you know, on that creative flow, you, you know, the second album, Who Cares Wins, came straight after the following year, virtually, didn't it? It wasn't. Yeah. Did that didn't come together well. pretty quickly? Didn't go down very well, that one. Uh, well, it came together more, obviously, quicker than the first one. Uh, um, we got accused of being road blind and, you know, but basically, people didn't think it was as good as the first album. You know, it's got some good tracks on there. It was too long as well. We tried to do too many songs on one record, so we tried to cram too much in. I think we spent a month in Berlin recording that. And I think we tried to cram too too much in. We should have just stuck to 10, 10 of our, you know, tracks rather than I think it's 14 on there. It's a so lot. When, that actually, when it got cut to vinyl, you know what it's like, a really long record, it doesn't sound very good on vinyl. No. To this day, to this day, God bless Ian Burgess, rest in peace, because he's he's not around anymore. He didn't do a great job on the mixing. I I didn't think, and I, I think on reflection, everyone thought that the songs were great, but it just sounded like a really good demo, really. Yes, disappointing. But luckily for the band, that didn't kill you. But then you also had a, a, a you started. Well, you toured extensively, and you also hit Reading as well, didn't you? So that must have felt like um, an exciting experience from going from clubs to bigger clubs to, blimey, this is a festival now. Reading Festival, yeah. Well, me and Dan and Wiz went to every Reading in the 80s and we used to camp all weekend. So we got asked to do the Reading Festival, was it 1990, the first one? We got asked to do it three months beforehand. And I don't think I slept for three months. I was so excited and nervous, personally. And I know that the other guys were as well. It's the most nerve-wracking thing I've ever done in my life, going on that stage. And um, Does it feel really, big? Yeah. Did you feel like, Jesus, this is like... Uh, well, yeah, it felt big. I mean, we'd done, we had done a few bits and bobs festivals before then, but this was the ultimate for us. We'd always gone to Reading. We'd always wanted to play Reading. And we got on there and played an absolute blinding half-hour set and looking out and all the people were going mad. Oh, it couldn't have gone better, honestly. One of the highlights of my life, for sure. Yes. Absolutely. Nice. And how were yeah. you... And and obviously, we'd had that sort of the, the explosion of the Seattle grunge scene. So was, were those kind of influences kind of tapping into the band and, and the sort of general sound as well? Yeah, I think they were... Um, we, obviously, we used to listen. I'm sitting next to Nirvana's filing cabinet, by the way, David. If you had the video on, you'd see Nirvana's filing cabinet, yeah? Oh, blimey. What it's a bit of a mad story. It's a bit of a mad story, but I've got Nirvana's filing cabinet. Literally, literally, <laughs> the, the vi they're, they're sort of, well, that's that's incredible. Oh, look, tell us the story. I can't can't go to sleep now. What is the well, story? When, when I say it was theirs, it was, we were on the same agency as them, and their agent, Oh, what was his flipping name now? He used to store all the Nirvana files and all the all the um, sub pop files in his um, filing cabinet. 
And one day they were throwing it out, so I said, I'll have it. Oh, <laughs> That's it, really. No, none more exciting than that. And That's pretty exciting. Because I know that they, they had a manager called Danny Goldberg for a while who's gone on to write various books, and he seemed to be part of their management team, but that wasn't him then. No, it wasn't him. No, it was their agent. Oh, an agent, uh, Ron, yeah, not their manager. Really, really nice guy, really lovely guy. Flipping that's really bad. I'm really terrible with names, David. That's Getting old. Enough. I know, this is true, actually. You know, we've all had those conversations where you you know who I'm talking about. You know, that man. You think, yeah, just give me a few more clues. You know, there's... <laughs> like... <laughs> yes. So, but so yeah, what... Nirvana, yeah, well, I mean, we obviously listen to a lot of Nirvana and Soundgarden. We played with Mudhoney a lot. Yes. Uh, I suppose we that did have a bit of an influence, I suppose, on the, the sort of bit grungier sound. Yeah. You know, we start with... With loads of different guitar sounds and and um, yes, I don't know. Difficult to say. I don't, wouldn't say heavily, but we definitely used to listen listen to it a lot. Yeah, who didn't? Why well, no? I mean, you know, it was exciting. You know, let's face it. It, yeah. it, 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 it. They created a good sound. So as we trucked into the nineties, the John Major years, and then we had sort of Britpop. But a lot of bands, you know, like you mentioned Carter at one stage. I mean. Well, not at one stage, but they play, they headlined Glastonbury, I think, in 92. And suddenly you got yeah. these kind of like bands that were one minute, you know, at the Arts Centre or the Waterfront or the UEA, suddenly like, right, headlining Glastonbury. Go cast the Unstoppable Sex Machine. I saw you six months ago in front of 500 people. Now you're the main stage. So you must yeah. have thought, you must have felt like you were on the sort of, you know, because time in, in music is everything, isn't it? I mean, I've spoke to various people who who said, well, you know, like there was Richard Strange from the Doctors and Madness. He said, we were two years too early for punk. So all the people yeah. who came to see us were like people who went on to, you know, form punk, punk bands and have their moment of glory. And he was over the hill by 97 or 96, you know, it was like, mm -hmm. so timing is good. So your timing was brilliant, wasn't it? Well... In what way? Well, in the sense that there was this kind of excitement of guitar-based bands that, you know, in the, I mean, in the 80s, you had the sort of indie world, which, you know, you, you probably wouldn't have fitted in quite so well. But by that period of, you know, the Kurt Cobain world, you know, Sonic Youth, the Buttholes, you know, pe people could go and make an, a noise with a guitar, couldn't they? And it would be all right. Uh, and then, and then you had Brit Pop, which obviously is a bit more smoother. But you know, bands like the Levelers were also had gone from being a you know a, quite a crusty, festy band to again they were headlining Glastonbury. So it it was kind of a period where you know people wanted that sound, didn't they? Yes, I think there was definitely uh, an audience that would bang up for it, David. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh... I don't know. There was a lot of dance music around as well, wasn't there? So there, was I guess a, there was a lot of drugs. Let's face it, there was a lot of drugs. Funnily enough, we never touched it. Don't blame you. But yes, yeah. well, a lot of, you know, a lot of those 80s bands, you know, the indie bands, just sort of just not going on too much about it. But one of the things that knocked most of them out was the ecstasy world that came along and, and it was like people wanted the Happy Mondays, Stone yeah. Roses, you know, no, that, that primal scream. That was running side by side, really, wasn't it? There was like the, the ravers and the dance kids, and then there was the sort of indie uh, and the grunge kids, and there was a sort of crossover because I used to like dance music, and I know lots of people used to go to raves that used to go to come to our gigs, you know, or Reading Festival and stuff like that. So I think everyone was just up for a bloody good time. They were generally, 
They wanted yeah. to get loaded and have a good time. So then yeah. you signed up with, over to Big Life, which were kind of, were they yeah. quite a dance label? Did they have quite a few acts on there who were dance? They had, um, they had De La Soul, uh, Yaz, um, or Cold Cut, or Yaz oh, and Cold Cut. yes, Yaz uh, and, the, and the plastic and, and Cold Cut. Yes, and Lisa Stansfield and, yeah. Well, it wasn't on that label, but Tim Parry used to manage, Tim Parry and Jazz Summers, who's run the label, used to manage Lisa Stansfield. Um, the Orb were on there, I think. That's right. Uh, and a couple of other hip-hop and sort of dancey things. It was a really cool place, actually. Really, really, really nice. Really yeah. nice people. Well, it's definitely, I mean, obviously they must have been happy because the, what they had on their, um, yes, catalogue was definitely selling, shifting units, as they say in the business. Yeah. Which I must... think they signed, us, they signed us expecting the British Nirvana, I think. Right. Which they sort of almost got at first. <laughs> <laughs> so what, so on your third album, had, yeah. Can you, what was the, what was the, because you said the second one was a bit disappointing and then you had the third one, which is quite interesting sometimes. What was, what was that experience like? Everything came together. It was, um, Big Life gave us a load of money so we could go and buy loads of new instruments and live properly, eat properly, rehearse properly, you know, nice studios. They paid for a really nice studio up in London, which initially was started by, Jessica Corcoran, who'd just done the Wonder Stuff Hup album. Oh, no. She'd engineered on Wonder Stuff, I think. And then she'd produced the first Ned's album, I think, Ned's Tropic Dustbin. We thought, right, we'll give her a go. And then she started recording it at Greenhouse up in Old Street. We were going up there every day in our posh car that we bought. <laughs> it, looked like a, um, it looked like a pimp's car. Excellent. <laughs> old, um, an old Japanese Nissan v6 it was like a, a living room on wheels it's fantastic with big ashtrays that we all smoked so we drove up to sorry i'm digressing up to greenhouse every day recorded sebastopol road wizard written some brilliant songs for it uh bessie'd ever done and she started mixing it and just by chance that day i went to another studio on my own to mix some tracks with Chris Potter. These were meant to be B-sides. I can't remember if they were live or they were just B-sides. Anyway, mixed these three or four tracks and they sounded absolutely fucking incredible. And Chris Potter had just been working with the Rolling Stones and he, he ended up doing the Verve album, you know, that big, the big one? The big one, yes. Yeah. And uh, also turns out he used to like heavy metal and we used to hang out with him at the Agricor, but we didn't realise. Um, so, cut long story short, I, I I got mixes of them, took them back to Greenhouse. They were mixing Sebastopol Road, and I sort of listened to it. It's like, yeah, that sounds right. I said, give this a go. She put the, this these four tracks on, and they just sounded absolutely belting, absolutely amazing. So obviously, on the way home in the car, in the on the way home in the car that night, we we're all like, Jesus, boys, Jess is mixing it, and it's all it's all sounding a bit sort of weedy and tinny and Chris mixed these four songs and it sounds big and beefy and amazing. What do you think? Oh, I don't know. So we, we rung up uh, Tim and Jazz from Big Life the next day and said, look, these four songs that Chris Potter's mixed, they sound absolutely incredible. And they said, 
don't worry, lads. We'll sort it out. Uh, Jazz Summers is a quite well known for sorting stuff out. He used to be um, uh, Wham or George Michael's manager, I think. He's quite a notorious big time manager, you know. Uh, yes. He wrote us back about an hour later and went, Don't worry, lads. Chris Potter's mixing the album. We're doing it in Metropolis in Chiswick. Don't worry about a thing. We're like, What? <laughs> they basically said, they, they just sacked her, got hold of the tapes. We went to another studio and Chris Potter mixed it. And we kind of felt sorry for Jess, but it was the right thing to do. It's It, it, it all came together on that album. That's the album I'm most proud of. Um, anyway, yeah, love it. Yes. Really, nice. really great song, great songs. Yeah, no complaints. Great artwork. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the artwork, I mean, it's interesting because there was quite a lot of bands who, who sort of did good artwork, didn't they? You know, and, and you know, Mega City 4, you've got one of the most iconic ones, haven't you? Like, yeah, I was thinking of Cud and um, Inspiral yeah. Carpets. But, you know, your, your logo is brilliant. It's almost up there with the Stones, isn't it? It's still, to this day, logo. people love it. What's the story behind that? Well, actually, it was designed by our old drummer, Martin Steep. <laughs> and we never, we never paid him a penny for it. <laughs> <laughs> but when he, le- when he left the band, he just carried on using it. Because right. he, got- he designed it when he was in the band. So if he listens to this, he'll probably ring me up and want a- a- send me an invoice for a, a million pounds or something. Yes. I don't know, but... But that's the actual truth. Yeah, yeah. no, I mean, and you yeah. must, it is, it is quite interesting, you know, when you look at it and, and still see how it's well used. And, and, you know, a lot of bands seem to have, you know, like the Stones being the obvious one, but I've just got managed to get their logo, which just looks so good. And, and you know, decades later, people still want, you know, a T-shirt with it on, don't they? They do. We said um, the Ford for Wizard Trust, um, which is. Uh, have you heard of the Ford for Wizard Trust? No. It's. It was set up by Karina, who was um, was his partner at the time when he passed. She set up this charity to help young and inspiring bands um, try, well, basically raise money and give money to projects for you know struggling musicians that are trying to make a record or 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 want to learn how to play, or anything like that. Uh, so I'm, me and Dan are presidents of it, and I can't remember what I was talking about now. What was talking about? Oh yeah, that's right. I mean, um, Karina does runs it really, and she occasionally runs organises for runs of t-shirts. And you still probably sell about two or three hundred at a time. I think. Yes, and all that money gets put into the charity, and that money's used to help um, you know musical projects. Um, of which Karina deems fit. <laughs> which is, yes. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a, it can be a tricky situation to be in. Because you've, you know, I mean, touring was one of your, you know, was, was the thing that you were quite famous for because you did just get out there and you did Europe and also North America. How did you deal with America? Because most bands have kind of quite a mixed experience. Actually, most really didn't have a good experience. So um, how was your American experience uh, good in general. We had some bad luck because uh, we were supposed to do 12 dates. I think we were doing seven on the East Coast and five on the West. Um, Wiz fell ill after the first one or two shows and we had to drop out of a couple, which was a very disappointing considering we'd gone all the way over there 
and you know people have come all the way out to see us it's quite good crowds there to see us they obviously heard us on john peel and um uh, in music papers and stuff uh, so we had to drop out of a couple of dates but in general it went very well Brilliant. enjoyed it yeah we had a great time this is this is good. So then, as as sort of you progress, I mean, as were you feeling because the band sort of comes slightly to a halt towards the mid nineties, doesn't it? Ninety six. I mean, were things kind of quite hard going? You know, keeping it together towards those last couple of years because you still did. You know, you moved record label again, which is always a bit traumatic, yeah. and then you also did another album. So how how was it? How were you feeling with with the band? Uh, pretty depressed, really. <laughs> um, it was obviously sort of going in popularity going downhill and um, the last album we did with Fire very nice people but we kind of it was like being back at Final Solution again being, going back to square one you know um, we were face, you know we were skint all the time uh, we were facing I think we actually started going back to work again, I think. Um, and we recorded it, sounded good. You know, mixed it, sounded good, released it, didn't really, you know, with an indie, you never really get the big push. And I, I think, even though it's a really great album, it didn't get the exposure that it should have done. And I think we were kind of, uh, what's a nice, polite way of saying it? Not has-beens, but, you know, we were, we were, out of flavour by then, I think. There was a lot more new stuff coming in, like you say, Blur, Britpop, all that kind of stuff. So we were kind of old school. And, yeah, it just sort of went downhill from there, David, really, until uh, we our last ever gig was in Ipswich, funnily enough, at the uh, at the Drum and Monkey. Oh, my by God. The, by the football ground. Yeah, and uh, 50 people showed up. And it was a blinding show. And then we played Miles Apart last. And uh, all got in the van. It was all very quiet. And I think we all realised then that it was all over, <laughs> and it was. <laughs> oh no! Miles apart mm. was the last ever live track song. Yeah. I yeah. guess it's poetical, but it's a shame. Yeah. My God. Yeah. Yes. So, did you have to have that conversation, or did it just? Did you? Because you were in a shared house. I mean, did it? How did you yeah, sort of? Yeah, but to be honest, I'd moved out by then, actually, David. So I'd I'd, I'd moved out a couple of years previously. Because um, I was having, I was finding it hard work, sort of living with um, Wiz and Dan and, and touring with them and everything at the same time. Yeah. So I moved, I moved out for a bit of a fresh breeze, as it were. Um. Uh, I mean, what's talking about now? Yes, the end, as Jim Morrison once said. Oh yes, and yes, like I say, we got in the van and we all sort of knew really, and nothing was sort of really said. Um, and then Wiz um, decided he wanted to go to Canada and play with the Doughboys for a bit. So we thought, well, that's that then. So got a job on a building site for a couple of years with a mate. Um, so that was the end, yeah. Yes. Pretty, pretty One minute. Well, I mean, you know, what did we peak? 91, 92, headline the Astoria. I'd say that's when we peaked on the Sebastopol Road Tour at the Astoria. Uh, and I think we played that Hummingbird as well. Nearly sold out. That was a cracking tour. I think that's when we peaked. So, you know, five years going up, sort of three years going down. 
Oh God, it's a, t- it's, a, it's a. So how do you kind of emotionally cope with that kind of moment when you wake up and think, oh shit, it's over? Well, it's very depressing. Uh, you know, the fire's gone out of your belly. Basically, I had no desire to sort of pick up a bass and join another band. You know, personally, um, I think I, I ended up back living with my mum's for a couple of years because I didn't have any money. I had to sign on as well for a bit. Uh, yeah, it's all pretty depressing, David. Yes, I can't, I, I kind of... It's not like we had lavish years in the band, you know. The, the most we ever got from the band was like 150 quid a week. Yes. Uh, um... Like away, you know, so we weren't, we, didn't, we certainly weren't living in mansions with swimming pools, you know, we were living in rented houses and eating cheese sandwiches for 10 years, you know. Yes, with a so, Mars, with a Mars bar. Being, I was well used to being poor, <laughs> but not being in the band and... Jamming again was was very hard to take. Yeah, very depressing actually. Yeah. In fact, I think I was I think I was depressed for about two years, at least <laughs> two well, or three years. I think most people have you know have that kind of you know I mean without quoting Joni Mitchell, you don't know what you've got until it's gone. Actually, I just did quote yeah. Joni Mitchell, but it is that kind of I suppose it is that thing. But then it's difficult because. I'm always boggled, you know, like I mentioned earlier, you know, like with the David Bowie thing. I mean, he spent all the 60s making some pretty forgettable music, had his moment in the 70s and then and then had to make those big kind of decisions, which now look like, oh, yes, of course. But, you know, when he made the Low album, you, you'd have thought, God, that is career suicide, mate. You know, you're never going to come back from that. But you do. But oh. not many people can sort of navigate that creative journey that well you know some people like the Rolling Stones just kind of keep going but you know they, they had their moment in the early yeah late 60s and early 70s with those really classic albums with um, Mick Taylor on guitar when he'd replaced Brian Jones and but they were just a sort of a became a brand didn't they but to try and keep it going is it is difficult because um the, the, the other thing is that your fans the fickle fan starts to sort of yeah. They get a life and they go, well, actually, I'm, I'm not going to go out tonight because I'm, you know, I've got, I've got to get up for work tomorrow. I can't just go to every gig that I used to at the arts centre or whatever. So it is tricky. So you, you get down to sort of a period where, yeah, like when you said, when there's no money as well, it's, it is hard to, um, yes, keep the fire going, really. Yes. And, uh, yeah, I, I didn't. Uh, very depressed. Like I say, for, it was a very depressing time. But there you go. Uh... But then how did you find yourself coming back into the, the world that is rock and roll? Well, you mean what, as what I'm doing now as a sound engineer and all yes. that? Yes. When it came to the last couple of years of the band, I used to get really bored on tour. <laughs> and because um, all we were doing was an hour, sound, you know, an hour or two sound check and an hour set every day. And it's like flicking it, you know, this is really like a few beers or whatever. Um, this is really boring. So I said to our sound engineer at the time, a guy called Tabs or Nick Cotton is his real name, from Bristol. I said, would you mind, you know, sort of teach me how to do sound and I'll do sound for the support bands, if that's all right with you. And he said, yeah, go on then. So he taught me how to do sound. Uh, and then so after the band split up and I was on the building site and all this kind of stuff. Uh, I was uh, sort of teaching myself all about sound and PAs by sort of just doing some local bands. Yes. And and then a friend, a very good friend of mine called Mervyn George, who used to be a rock DJ at the Cambly Agincourt, 
uh, he used to run his PA company, Farnborough. So he said, you, you know, do you want to come along and, um, you know, have a tryout? So they, they sent me out on some gigs. This is, um, you know, building PA, putting together PA systems um, and then doing sound. So I went out on a few shows, as third man, T-boy, basically. And then they, they started sending me out on um, jobs of my own. I, and I did some pretty decent tours, actually. I did Sister Sledge, loads of 60s tours. Um, and then I got a phone call from this uh, band from New Zealand called Garage Land in 1998. And they said, do you want to be our sound engineer? And I said, well, uh, yeah, all right then. He said, well, come and see us play. And I went to see him play. And then I was I did their sound for two years. And I, I mean, they took me to New Zealand with them for three months, uh, all around the States, all around Australia. And then I started doing another Australian act all over the States. Um, and then I came back and I started, I got Shaking Stevens asked me to do his sound in 1999. I've been doing his sound ever since. So I've done loads of tours for him. Um, who else have I been doing? That's Susie Quattro. Uh, that's that's yeah, Susie, Quattro, Susie Quattro for fifteen years. Yes, but a tour manager as well. Yeah, and also do I've been doing some. Do you remember Sleeper? Yes, I've been doing some uh, shows for them the last couple of years. Um, just doing front house sound for them. They're really lovely people. I absolutely love them. God, yeah. great band. What great band! And they've got some great songs. Really lovely. Well, I do and, remember uh, their famous one of their famous albums. So I suppose it was, the, I think it was called the Itka, which just seemed to, again, they yeah. they just kind of were there. Everything just fell into place. The stars lined up, as we say. So yeah. So do you? I mean, has that uh, kind of has has that filled that kind of gap that you would yes. be there if you if you had say, I mean. <laughs> Being on the building site, so let's face it, being on the building site is a young man's game, really, isn't it? But, you know, if you just got another job, which was like not in music, but kind of was all right, you know, it's OK. But you, you obviously, you know, you have spent your whole life in music. It would have been a bit of a shame then not to sort of do anything within that field. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, the good thing about it is I'm on tour all the time, which I love. You feel... As a sound engineer, you sort of feel like you're artistically adding towards the show, you know, because you're controlling the sound. And if you make the sound band sound great, then, you know, that's your job. It makes you feel good. Uh, plus, you get paid a lot more than being in the band. <laughs> well, depend, well, I get paid more now than I used to be when I was in Megas anyway. And what's the other thing? Oh, yeah, you get to drink lots of beer. Yes. And um, um, I did hang that. out with some really good people. Yeah, because I did an interview with um, John Haskett, Haskett, who was based in Portsmouth. No way, did you? Yes, because I think he was... He's one of my mates. Did he not mention me? But, um, so, yeah, he was, uh, he was, because there was a bright... He does does Sleeper with me. He he does some of the Sleeper shows, and I do some of the other ones that you can't, well, we share them between us. Yeah, because Portsmouth did a, had a compilation, a cassette came out in the 80s called Against the Tide, and it had something like, I don't know, 28 tracks on it. Um, and there was various bands like Red Letter Day and the Cylons, and I can't remember, mm. but he might have been in one of those bands. I think that's why I tracked him down. And then I realised that actually he was in a band for quite a short time, but he's had his, you know, spent his life 
in music as a sort of the mix, you know, doing mixing and the sound engineering, basically. And so it was like, you know, it's such a thrill because people would sometimes come up to him at the end of a gig and sort of say, can I shake your hand? That was just a brilliant sound. And he was like, thank you very much. That's my job. John used to work for the same PA company that I first I got my first work with back in 97. I used to go out with John. We used to do hot chocolate. Um, stuff like that. <laughs> it's madness. <laughs> yes, but it's good. A lovely know, I mean, guy. Well, I know. Um, amazing. Because just with the Susie Quattro, I mean, there is one of her tracks I think is just amazing called If You Can't Give Me Love. Is that one of those ones yeah. when you hear it every night? Does that go down particularly well? Brilliantly, yeah, yeah. She's got, a, I mean, she does a two-hour show now. Um, and every... I think there's one or one cover that keep on rocking in the free world. Oh yes, no. Everything else, yeah, everything else is either off her albums or singles. She doesn't leave anything out. So when it gets to the end of the show, she bangs them out like forty-eight crass. No, it's like glycerine queen, can the can, devil gate drive. Then comes back on and does. If you can't give me love, and it's just a brilliant end to the show. It is a really brilliant gig. I absolutely love it. Yes. And um, she's even though she's seventy this year, she still kicks butt. Seriously. Uh, and if I if I do something wrong, <laughs> <laughs> excellent. And obviously, I mean, you know, there is. I mean, you know, with everything in life, and as we all experience, you know, things get a bit sort of tricky. I mean, it, it was. It must have been an amazing shock when you got the phone call or heard that Wizard sort of passed away as well in in sort of oh six. Yeah, that's yeah, awful. The worst thing, I just, that's the worst thing that's ever happened in my life, I think, hearing that news. Danny Brown rang me up from the hospital. I was at my rehearsal rooms in Farnborough and he yeah, rang and told, I just couldn't believe it. Absolutely knocked me back. Worked terrible. That was yes. another depressing thing that happened. And uh, uh, I drank quite a lot of wine for two years after that. Yes. When was when, had had you seen him much before then, or had it just you know were just life getting on, and you just you know as you do, just sometimes think one day we'll you know meet up again. I'm sure, but then Not sometimes the yeah. Uh, no, we, we we saw each other all the time. Yeah, because um, I, I played in a band with him called Ipanema for a while in the two thousands, and I was so busy with sound engineering, I just said, look, guys, I can't you know, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to let you down. So they got another bass player in, and he used to come and practice at my rehearsal rooms um, in Farnborough, which I've had for about 20 years. Uh, so we saw each other all the time, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, so, well, I suppose that's better than those other moments where you keep thinking, yeah, one day we will sort of, you know, I'm sure when we're a bit older we'll all get together and have a bit of a drink, but, um, and then when it doesn't happen, that's that's kind of awful, but then, you know, Yes, when you've been seeing someone, and there's no sort of indication that anything's wrong, you know, it's like Jesus Christ. The, the night before he had his aneurysm, I'd gone to hospital uh, with Karina, his girlfriend, uh, to meet him at the hospital because he'd had he's complaining of a really bad migraine. Uh, so I finished at the rehearsal rooms and drove straight to Primary Park, and you know he was just sat there and he didn't look particularly good. And they did loads of tests on him, and uh, the doctor said, you know, we don't think it's anything serious, and if he gets loads of migraines, then, you know, just take these pills and go home. Um, and, yeah, the next day he had an aneurysm in, um, in, in, the bar, in the bathroom. It's really awful. 
terrible. Yeah, really terrible. I mean, you know, you can't see it coming, can you? You know, no. It's just, it's um, it's it's just one of those things. But yeah, fucking awful, awful. Yeah. Uh, um, did you enjoy, or have you still got your rehearsal studios in Farnborough? I certainly have. Yes. In fact, we're reopening them on Saturday after this COVID nineteen bollocks. Jesus, fucking <laughs> uh, yeah, we've been going since two thousand and one. We had to close, obviously, twenty first of March, twenty uh, third of March, wherever it was. Then we're opening again on Saturday for the first time. So three months, it's been oh. sitting there doing nothing. Yes, that must be. And just, yeah. and just, just kind of lastly, it must have been fantastic when a band like Moose covered, you know, your song Prague as a B side. You know, last well, ten yeah. years. Yeah. Very flattering, yes. Did um, you, and did they do a good, did you feel like they did it proud? I thought they did a version of it, which is good. Uh, I'm not saying it's amazing, um, but I think it is good. And I, like I say, I'm absolutely flattered they did it at all. It was mixed reception. I remember going on YouTube and seeing Muse's video on there and some sort of muse kids had written underneath, what's this rubbish, you know, what's the point of this? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it also, it also got onto the, 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 you know, the Mega City 4 YouTube version of Prague and also writing comments on there as well, like, yeah, I prefer, I prefer the muse version. And <laughs> I started arguing with them, like, you don't, you've no idea, have you? You've no idea what this is for, what this is about, so shut up. And then I just gave up after that. Yes, no. <laughs> When it gets into that, well, the, the quite nice thing it is was, that it was very nice of them to do, and uh, yeah, uh, really great chaps. Yes, and also actually, the one of the bass players from the Census things was uh, touring with Moose, wasn't he as well? So, um, he still does. That's right. Yeah, he does. Yeah, a nice little. So, yeah. look, lastly, what would you say if you could as, as said anything to your an eighteen-year-old self after? I mean, like decades of experience. I just wondered what you would have oh. kind of like. God, just kid just listen to this i'll just give you a couple of pointers you can ignore it but this is what i've learned on this interesting road that was rock and roll or is uh oh god put you right on the spot there um what would i say to my 18 year old self um don't <laughs> When you meet that girl in 1999, she's going to do your complete head in. Don't have anything to do with her. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's good. That's the only advice. Yes. Musical advice. I, I, no regrets, David. No regrets at all. Don't think I would have done anything differently. Um, yeah, I, I can't think of anything, to be honest with you. No. I can't think of anything. Well, that's always good no. when you feel like that. I mean, most people say things which are kind of quite obvious, like, I wish we'd practised a bit more, taken a bit more seriously or had lightened up and just had a bit more of a laugh because we were all a bit sort of like, you know, but... and sometimes... I, tell you, oh, I tell you one thing, it would be, don't worry so much about everything. That's what it would be. That would be my advice because I'm a real worrier and I've worried my way through life and stressed. That's what I, that's the main thing I'd say. Not It's not musical, but no. I'd say to my head, don't worry, you know... Everything gets sorted out. Uh, there's always a way out. It will just stay positive. It's like the last two or three months, we've all been through a mini sort of hell, haven't we? Yep. Um, I mean, I don't know if you're working or not or working from home or whatever, but I've been just sitting around doing nothing. And, you know, a lot of people are fed up with it. And mm -hmm. again, it, 
know, worries about the future and, you know, his finances and all this kind of stuff. And a hell of a lot of people are all in the same boat. But I would say anything I would say to an 18 year old, not just myself, but any young person, just don't worry. It all get, it all gets sorted out in the end. Yes. It's got to stay positive. Yeah. I know, this is true. I know, because when you're young, and especially looking back at the 80s, I remember thinking, God, we used to sort of, it was fretful. We moaned as well. We moaned and worried. <laughs> it's all part of it. Yes, we took it all too seriously. Anyway, look, this has been fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this. This has been amazing. That's and, and uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. So look, I really hope... From Saturday onwards, we can both get our haircut. Well, not you, but, you know, I, I need a haircut and your studio can open and, <laughs> and we can slightly get back to some normality. Just avoid Leicester. Yeah, I think avoid Leicester and you're sorted. Yeah. Well, everyone's fed up with it now, aren't they? Yeah. So, yes, hopefully we can get back to normal as soon as possible. I know. Whatever normal was. Mind you, normal wasn't particularly good before this, was it? <laughs> no. Well, I hope, I suppose this is my hope, is that there's a few things we're doing differently. So, you know, we'll keep the, the good things and then sort of just, yeah, just go back to something that was slightly normal. I think the good thing is actually learning, you know, like I've learned, you know, rather than having to go and have a meeting and go from A to B, you go, we'll just do it on Zoom or, you know, something, you know, right. like a lot really simple things that you think, God, that saved hours of effort and time, didn't it? Just to have that kind of chat with somebody. And before this, you know, it felt like, oh, no, we'll have to go and see each other. We'll have to have that meeting with various other people and you have to sort exactly. of physically do it. So now I'm hoping that that's kind of like, God, that's such a stupid thing to do. I'm wondering if we're going to see a, a hell of a lot of empty office space in a year or two's time. <laughs> everyone, yes, you know, I think... Why pay all the rent, rent and business rates and all that on a premises when everyone can work from home? Yes, I know. Well, I, I exactly. That's the one thing that I just thought. Wow, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of people must go right. Okay, if we need an office, let's have a really small office, which you know is a base yeah, right. where we can occasionally get together and have the odd this and that and do various this and yeah. that. But we don't need a big office with everybody in it anymore. That's just old hat. Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of flats being appear appearing in cities in the next five years. Yeah, right. Yeah. anyway look this has been fantastic thank you ever so much for your time and look take care and um, like I said it was great seeing you in Ipswich all that time, all those time years ago that, though, that was at the Caribbean thanks mate yeah take care there thanks mate alright well, I'll talk to you again soon we're see friends you later. on Facebook now aren't we? we are friends, friends on... oh we might cool. not see you on... okay we might be friends on Facebook anyway take care see you later bye bye right, bye. bye and that Yes, that did go on a bit too long, didn't it? Anyway, there you go. That's life. Um, yes, and that is Jerry Bryant from the Mega City 4. Thank you ever so much for listening. If you still are, well done. You deserve a medal. Anyway, look, if you want to contact me for some random reason, make it nice and positive. It's not the year, not the year to be negative, is it? Um, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86show. And also all these interviews have been archived and they're on podcast land. You can find those on iTunes, Spotify and Podbean. So there you go. Anyway, David Eastall saying goodbye. Stay safe. Have a great week.